Amen. Thank you, Robin. Great song, great thought. Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, please, to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We'll be on page 545, Isaiah chapter 48. We have a lot of folks away on vacation and traveling, and I am glad that people can get away and get a break. Uh, we all need that from time to time, but there's a part of me also that's ready for vacation season to be over, and um, I'm glad you're here. Isaiah 48, Paul told the Corinthian believers to flee from idolatry. So those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus have been commanded to flee from idolatry. There should not be anything or anyone we admire, love, reverence, or worship more than God our Creator, the God of the Bible. And we are in a 21-message Sunday morning series that I've called uh, Learn of Him to Flee from Idolatry. Last week we talked about our Creator being sovereign. To be sovereign means that God does whatever He chooses to do without needing any approval from man or any celestial being or celestial committee. God is sovereign over His own creation. He does as He pleases. He is the supreme authority. And we talked about God's sovereignty over man's salvation. He chose the only means of salvation to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose the only means to Jesus to be by grace through faith rather than works. And while man does get to decide if he chooses Christ and trusts God's plan, God does not give man any say whatsoever in how to be saved. We talked about God being sovereign over governments and leaders and how gifted people are. We talked about God being sovereign over the sufferings of His people, and we rejoice that nothing gets through the loving hands of our Father to one of God's children without God allowing it to happen. What a great truth. Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers also, he said, there be many that are called gods, but there is but one God. 1 Corinthians 8. Though there is one God, the world into which Jesus sent His apostles was filled with many that were called gods. There was a pantheon of Greek and Roman gods everywhere. The apostles took the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen and coming again. Some took great offense to the apostles saying that the deities they worshipped were not gods. It angered many of them to hear the apostles and early prophets and witnesses say that the objects of their worship were either man-made or evil spirits posing as a god. Many living in Asia and Europe in the days of the apostles, they followed and they believed in those they called gods. But sincerely believing in Zeus and Diana doesn't make them a god any more than believing that the earth is flat makes it any different than the sphere that the Scripture teaches it is and observation has confirmed it is not our sincere belief of anything that makes it true. It is consistency with the written words of God that makes something true. Neither your sincere beliefs nor mine change the truth. Though there are many purposes for the Bible, the most important purpose for the Bible is for God to reveal Himself to mankind. Thoughtful people look around and 
the complexity in creation around us, particularly the complexity in biological creation, and they could rightfully come to the most obvious conclusion that there is a creator. But we cannot look around us and decide what that creator is like. We live in a fallen, broken, twisted world. And so if you and I want to know what the creator is like, about whom all creation bears witness, then we must look in the Bible where God has revealed himself to us. It's sad to me that most people have not looked in the Bible to find out who Jesus of Nazareth really was. The average person has made a Jesus up in their own mind that they like, and they haven't checked at all to see who the real Jesus even was, and that is a kind of idolatry. I certainly think I echo the view of most here this morning when I say I want to believe and know and follow God as He has revealed Himself to us to be. In the last half millennia before Jesus Christ, the first empire to control the known world was the Babylonian Empire. It was the Babylonian kingdom that defeated the southern kingdom of Judah and burnt Jerusalem to the ground and destroyed the temple that Solomon had constructed. The head of the Babylonian pantheon of gods was an individual called Marduk. Sometimes Marduk also went by the name of Bel, B-E-L. If you look at a picture of Marduk, you'll find that he is generally a strong bearded man with a tunic made of stars. And very often his image has a dragon either in the background or at his feet. It's no surprise that when Marduk was pictured as an animal, he was a forked tongue dragon. By the way, if you know anything about the Bible, that's pretty significant. Now, as the head of the gods of the Babylonian kingdom, Marduk was saw to seem to be a god of justice, compassion, healing, and thunderstorms. But Marduk was not eternal. He was not sovereign, nor was he holy. Jehovah, the God of the Bible, and the Creator is holy. If you're able to stand this morning, if you'd stand, please, in honor of God's Word. The title of my thought this morning is The Holiness of God. The Holiness of God. In Isaiah chapter 48, we begin in verse 17. It says, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, and the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off, nor destroyed from before me. Thank you, might be seated. Isaiah was the leading prophet in the nation of Israel during the reign of four different kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was the Lord's key prophet during the reign of Hezekiah, who is described as being the greatest king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was also the Lord's leading prophet during the reign of a man named Manasseh, who was the son of Hezekiah, who was the most evil king they have and uh, had. And Jewish tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in half at the command of Manasseh the king. And like all faithful prophets of God, some of the things that he had to say were pleasant and great to hear. Other things he had to say 
they were hard to hear, but true. In the text that we read, there's a clear statement about the character of our Creator as well as a glimpse into the motivation of what He does. Notice as verse 17 begins, it says, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Notice the Lord is called the Holy One of Israel. Now whenever you read in your Bible, and Lord is all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the personal name of God, Jehovah. Jehovah, the Redeemer, is the Holy One of Israel. He's not just the Redeemer, thank God He is that. He is the Holy One of Israel. The Bible refers to God in the Old Testament as the Holy One 36 times, and Jesus is called the Holy One in the New Testament four times. Jesus being the Holy One, just like Jehovah is the Holy One, is not only a testimony to Jesus being not simply just a man or a prophet, He is God manifest in the flesh. And it is a statement of His character. He is the Holy One. Notice then the Lord teaches His people that He gives His commandments to us for our prophet. In the second half of verse 17, He says, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. See, God doesn't just lead us in the way we should go. He also teaches us for our profit. What he teaches us, his commandments for us, they are for our good. <laughs> now that, to be honest with you, is quite uh, the opposite of what the average person thinks. The average person has the idea that any of the commandments of God are somehow there to take away their fun. The average person somehow thinks that whatever it is that God asked us to do or told us not to do, that somehow God is up there sort of wringing His hands, I wonder what I can do to make their life a little tougher. That is not the truth. Like any loving parent makes rules for their children, for the good of their children, our loving Father in heaven, every one of His commandments is actually for our profit. And though by the time Isaiah was writing this, judgment was on the horizon for both the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem because of their willful defiance of God's command, God would have preferred that they obeyed. God wanted to bless them. Verses 18 and 19, he says, Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. See, God was going to discipline them, but it wasn't his preference. Uh, loving parents discipline their children because they understand that their children will not develop any good character in life without good discipline. They also discipline them because our Father in Heaven disciplines His children and He's taught us to discipline ours. God's discipline, just like His commandments, is for our profit and God wanted to bless them. He wished they would have obeyed Him, but they chose not to and so they forced His hand. But for my thought today, as we seek to learn week by week how our Creator has revealed Himself to us to be, we drop back to 
the focus on the Lord Jehovah being the Holy One in the first half of verse 17, thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Though the lives of many of those who claim to believe in the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, any honest observer wouldn't describe the lives of those who say they believe as being holy lives. And though many American pulpits are silent today about the holiness of God and the holiness God desires from Christian people, the holiness of God and God's desire for holiness is an oft-repeated theme in both the Old Testament and New Testament. Psalm 99.9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Isaiah 5.16 says, But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified. You may remember the sermon Peter preached to the Jews from the Solomon's porch in the temple when he said in Acts chapter 3, And you denied the Holy One and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead. Peter, who spent nearly 24-7 with Jesus of Nazareth for between three and three and a half years, described Him knowingly as the Holy One, a title that is reserved for the God of the Bible. Hear the words of the seraphim around the throne of God in heaven when they say in Revelation 4.8, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. From the mouths of prophets, priests, kings, faithful witnesses, seraphim around the throne of God, and from God Himself, we're told God is holy. There's a reason on purpose we still sing the song here at Bible Baptist Church, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning my song shall rise to Thee. Holiness means no blemish, spot, fault, stain, error, or imperfection. Holiness is a complete absence of anything that is wrong or dirty or sinful. Holiness is to be completely set apart to God. That's a reason the root word at times is translated as sanctified. Now listen, there is no such thing as holy water, but if I had a beaker this morning up here of distilled water by definition, because it is distilled water and free from impurity of any sort, you could call that holy water. But if I were to drop even a partial drop of any other substance into that distilled water, it would no longer be holy. God is holy. He is the Holy One. Because God our Creator is holy. We read about holy anointing oil in Exodus 30 and holy ground in Exodus 3. A holy day in Nehemiah 8. A holy name in Isaiah 57. The Holy Ghost 90 times in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit 7 times. Because God our Creator is holy. Some form of holy occurs 654 times in the Bible. And we also read about a holy place in Ezekiel 42. A holy law and commandments in Romans 7, a holy first fruit in Ezekiel 48, and holy scriptures in Romans 1. Jesus himself is described as being holy. 
He is the holy child in Acts 4.27, a holy thing in Luke 1.35. He is the holy one, as we talked earlier in Acts 3.14. The author of Hebrews, moved by the Spirit of God to write the Scripture, said this in Hebrews 7.26 about Jesus. He said, For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. When Jesus spoke through John the Apostle to the seven churches in Asia, it says that Jesus described himself in Revelation 3, 7. He says, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. And as God reveals himself to mankind, regardless of how any one of us or anyone in our world portrays God, we learn that the true God, the one true God, is holy. In fact, holiness is the centerpiece of all God's attributes. Don't misunderstand me. The love of God is on display through the entire Bible. It did not start with Jesus of Nazareth. It started when God in mercy went to Adam and Eve after they sinned. But only two times in the Bible does the Bible say God is love. Over 50 times in the Bible, God is described as holy. The seraphim are on the throne of God. Don't say love, 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 but they do say holy, holy, holy. Now, I understand that many in our world make love the primary attribute of God and then go on to define the love of God in their own way. But God makes holiness the centerpiece of all his attributes, and he defines it for himself. God is holy. Because God is holy, he is absolutely incapable of an unholy act of any sort. Anything and everything God does is holy because God is holy. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just for a few minutes make some observations and applications of the fact that God is holy. Please first go in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. By the way, if you're somebody who wants to make God idolatry, idol, in an idolatrous manner be whoever you think he is, you're not going to like this morning's message, nor will you like this whole series. God is who he is. You and I don't get to decide who God is. We don't get to decide what He's like. God has decided that, and He's told us what He's like, and you and I either decide to believe that and embrace it or commit idolatry. God is holy. And so I'd like to make some observations. Here's number one. Because God is holy, He cannot allow anyone or anything in heaven without first having all their sins washed away. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul here says, Now then we, so not just Paul, Paul and the carnal Corinthian believers to whom he wrote, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God to beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Here it is, for he hath made him, that's the Father hath made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Did you hear that? The innocent Savior who knew no sin was made sin for us by the Father on the cross so that those of us who believe can be made the righteousness of God in 
Christ. There's a reason Hebrews 12.29 describes God in what could be considered an unusual way. Hebrews 12.29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. The consuming fire of God's holiness will burn away everything and everyone that is unholy in any way on the day of judgment. Please hear me when I say no one will enter the city of God for eternity who has not been made perfectly holy. Scientists estimate that the core temperature of our sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. I'm told that a physicist named James Hopkins Jeans, who passed away in the middle of the 20th century, he was a physicist who both was at Cambridge in England and at um, Princeton here in the States, he estimated that if you could take a piece of matter the size of a pinhead and heat it up to 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, that that piece of matter at that temperature would burn, and kill everyone who got within a thousand miles of it. Can I just say the core temperature of the sun is nothing compared to the consuming fire of the holiness of God, our omnipotent creator. And we just read the only hope we have is flawed people. God made Jesus Christ sin for us so that you and I could be made the righteousness of God in Him. We read it, verse 21, it's a great truth. For He hath made Him, the Father hath made Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God made Jesus to become sin on the cross for us, so that you and I could be made righteous in Christ. Listen, we all know, we've all failed and sin to different degrees in life. It doesn't shock any of us to read and understand the Bible and it says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We, we all understand, no matter who we are, whether you've went astray or a literal or a lie, we all understand that we've gone astray. We understand the words of a prophet, the prophet Isaiah, when he said, all we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Uh, we understand we've gone astray and thanks be unto God that our Father, our Creator, He laid the iniquity of us all on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The average person, and not just in America, I'm talking about in our world, they're planning to try to offer God their imperfect works in exchange for eternal life. God will not accept that because He is perfectly holy. He instead offers us to be spotless in His sight through Jesus Christ. Hear me, no one will enter the pearl gates of heaven, city. No one will walk in the golden street with the river of life flowing down the middle of that street, lined on its banks by the tree of life. No one will get in that city who has even one lie on their record. And there is no amount of good you and I can do to take away our sins or the stain from our sin that God has on our record for Judgment Day. Jesus is the only hope. Did you hear me? Jesus is the only hope. You may be here sitting thinking to yourself, well, I've been a Baptist for 40 years, and that, if that is your hope, you are resting on a false hope. 
You may have said a prayer that didn't change your heart. You may have been sprinkled as an infant. You may have been immersed in baptism. Listen, Jesus Christ is the only hope, not any work that you or I could do. God, who is perfectly holy, makes the only way for us to be holy in His sight in Christ. Don't misunderstand me. I believe we should do good. We should do good in our worlds. We should do good to our family. We should do good to our friends. But good works are all tainted with a drop of our desire for admiration. And they thus become filthy rags for our salvation in the sight of a thrice holy God. We should do good works in our faith. We should do good things in the Lord's church. But religious works are all tainted with some measure of desire for other people to think well of us and to think that we're good. And because of that, they become filthy rags in the sight of God to offer for our salvation. Jesus is the only hope. Let me ask you, have you personally called on Him? He's the only one who ever lived a perfectly holy life. He's the only one who has perfect holiness to offer. The church cannot offer perfect holiness. No godly family member can offer perfect holiness. Jesus and Jesus only can offer perfect holiness, and He offers it to you and me. Now, I know the vast majority of people, especially in a place like this, are mostly good. Mostly good is not perfectly holy. If 99.9% is good enough, I'm told 22,000 checks will be deducted from the wrong bank account today. I'm sorry, in the next hour. If 99.9% is not good enough, 2 million documents will be lost by the IRS in tax season. If 99.9% is good enough, I'm told there will be 20,000 incorrect drug prescriptions written. If 99.9% is good enough, I'm told that 12 newborn babies will be given to the wrong parents today. If 99.9% is not good enough for our bank, it's not good enough for our hospital, it's not good enough for our drugstore, it is not good enough with the perfectly holy God to live forever. You and I must be made holy, we must be made righteous, and that only happens in Christ. Have you ever been born again? Have you ever admitted your lost condition to call upon Christ for salvation and mercy? Anybody who's done that and actually was saved, you would never forget the experience. You might forget what you said. You might forget the date. You might forget some of the details. But you could never forget the changed heart it left you with. Do you honestly think that trying to offer God flaws work, flawed works to a creator who is a consuming fire of holiness, you actually think that's going to work? Why wouldn't you instead humble yourself to believe and receive the Lord Jesus? To repent and call upon the name of the Lord. 
But it's not just that because God is holy, He cannot allow anyone in heaven who has not had their sins completely washed away and made righteous and holy. Secondly, turn back in your Bible to Romans chapter 12. See, Brother Wally, I don't like hearing about the holiness of God. Well, you know what? Uh, I don't get to decide what God's like either. If you think it's easy to stand up here and tell you what God is really like, instead of telling you what you want to think God is like, you don't understand how difficult it is to do this. God is holy. He's the holy one. And because He's the holy one, no one will ever spend eternity with Him who has not been made holy to have all their sins washed away. Here's the second thing. Because God is holy, He's asked His children to live holy lives. Because God is holy, He has asked His children to live holy lives. By the way, if you're here and you're saved, you're the child of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. By the way, these are great memory verses. For those of you who want to hide God's Word in your heart, it says in Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So this is some Paul, he basically begs them to do. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, notice what he wants, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, God hasn't asked anything from you and I to get saved other than that we humbly believe and receive His perfect Son, Jesus. Jesus paid it all. Theologically speaking, repentance is a product of faith in Jesus rather than something we do to be saved. But practically speaking, because faith and repentance are inseparable, preachers say repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. God hasn't asked anything from us to get saved. Jesus paid it all. God hasn't asked anything from us to stay saved. If you're genuinely saved, the Bible says you're kept by the power of God. By the way, if you think that you're going to live good enough to keep your salvation, a salvation you didn't earn by works, how are you going to keep it by works? God doesn't ask us to do anything to get saved or stay saved. But God does have some things He's asked of us who are saved. In light of all God has done, He calls these things our reasonable service. Now some people might think it's not reasonable to offer these things to the God who loved us and gave so much for us, but God considers these things reasonable. He said, Brother Wally, what does he consider reasonable? Uh, verse 1, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's reasonable for you and I to live a sacrificial life for Jesus. Notice the second thing. He asks us to live holy. Holy. That's reasonable service. In verse 3, he says, 
Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change the way you're thinking to think the way our Creator has taught us to think, and it will transform your life instead of conforming your life to a world that all of us would agree does not follow the God of the Bible, and that all of us degree, would agree is deteriorating rapidly. God says, I want you to live a sacrificial life. God says, I want you to live a holy life. God says, I don't want you to conform your life to the world around you. I I want you to be transformed by the power of God. You and I, if you're here and you're saved, choosing to live a holy life, God considers to be a reasonable request. <laughs> Let me ask you a simple question. Would anyone who knows you well consider you at all to be someone who is trying to live a holy life? That's a good question. See, the message that God desires His people to live holy lives is not just positionally holy in Christ. It is practically in our life as well. And sadly, that message is missing in much of American Christianity. So why is it missing? Because Christians living a holy life is not cool. Christians living a holy life is not popular. Christians living a holy life is not marketable to the masses. It's not appealing to our culture. Man wants to do what he wants to do. We don't want to live a holy life. We don't want to get as much sin out of it as we possibly can. We don't want to be set apart and sanctified to God. We don't want to live that kind of a life. And so pulpits are silent because Christians don't want to hear it. And when Christians don't want to hear it, spiritual leaders sadly are silent about it. At the risk of being tedious to some of you, I want to give us just a glimpse of the emphasis God places on holiness for those who would call themselves a follower of Jesus. Turn up a few pages of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So Brother Wally, you're tedious all the time. I know. Brother Wally, you're making me uncomfortable. Why does the truth make you uncomfortable? I didn't say I like it all. But it shouldn't make us uncomfortable. Unless we need to respond. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Verse 16, by the way, this is writing to the carnal Corinthian believers. Verse 16, he says, Know you not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. The body of the believer, because the Holy Spirit lives in it, is supposed to be a holy temple. Do you ever consider that? Turn up a few more pages to Ephesians chapter 1. By the way, I'm just preaching, teaching the Bible. If you want that, you'll like it here. If you don't, you'll like it up the street where they don't even make you bring one. 
and they keep it dark out there just to make sure that you don't even need your Bible because you couldn't read it anyway. See, Brother Wally, you're awful sarcastic. Sometimes. I am. That, that's, that's, hey, that's my personality. I, I'm not nice like some of y'all. I try to be nice. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, According as He hath chosen us in Him, and has chosen us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, what was God's plan for us in Christ before the foundation of the world? Notice this statement. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. You and I, as a follower of Jesus, should be living a holy life without blame before Christ in love. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. So why are you making us turn in the Bible so much? Because I'm preaching and teaching something that a lot of people don't get to hear today. By the way, that doesn't make me special. It makes them negligent. For centuries, our biblical forefathers preached all the counsel of God. God in His sovereign choice has placed you and I in a day and age when most of American Christianity doesn't teach and preach the whole counsel of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Here Peter says, But as He which hath called you is holy, by the way, we're called by God, uh, He's holy. He says, So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Conversation are words over the period of time, uh, our behavior. So why should we do that? Verse 16. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And Peter quotes Leviticus chapter 11 where God says, be holy for I am holy to make sure that believers in Jesus understand that because our Creator is the Holy One, because God is holy, that God expects you and I, if we would be a follower of Jesus, to live a holy life. And those are just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, of the New Testament instruction that believers should live a holy life to get as much sin out of our life as possible. So Brother Wally, why so much silence on the issue of believers being holy? Listen, preachers are afraid. We've averaged almost eight first-time visitors now per week for over 17 years. Over 7,000 first-time visitors. About one in 11 people who visit here actually join. Why do you suppose more didn't stay? I'm, I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons. But quite frankly, a lot of it is somebody doesn't want to hear the Bible preached and taught. Listen, holy living isn't just for adults over 50 with few opportunities for immorality left. Holy living is for everyone and anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. That includes teenagers and young adults. Holy living wasn't just for the previous generation. Holy living is for our generation. It is not a generational thing. It is a God thing. 
is the instruction of the New Testament is the character of our God. To be godly in this world means to be like God. If you and I would live godly in Christ Jesus, then there needs to be a measure of growing holiness in our life. And though a few seem interested, I believe there will always be a group who are interested, and I want to be in that group. I'm not here this morning to talk about how the specifics of holiness apply to our music, our entertainment, our priorities, and our morals. I'm just here to say they apply. I'm not here to talk specifics of how holiness applies, how we treat one another and interact in our home and in the church. I'm just here to say, listen, holiness applies. I I get it. I get it. Holiness should look different and deepen as we grow in our faith. I I get it. Believers should increasingly apply holiness to ourselves and worry less about what someone else is doing. I get it. No believer can live a holy life without the grace of God. I mean, if you're sitting there thinking that I mean, oh, you're so ignorant of the grace of God. No, you're so ignorant of the rest of the New Testament. I get it. Nobody can live a holy life except for Christ in us and Christ living his life out through us by grace. I get it. I get it that no believer is perfectly holy anywhere other than in the mind of God in Christ where he has made us righteous in Jesus Christ. I understand all that. I'm just here to simply say to you our creator is holy and he's looking for holiness from his people. Let me just ask you a couple honest questions. Did you even know you're supposed to live a holy life as a believer? How are you applying holiness to your life? Does your life more reflect conforming to this culture or more of reflect conforming to Jesus? Did you know that as you grow in Christ, your life should be more holy rather than less? Uh, Listen, I've watched a lot of people season in their faith and in their uh, young adult life and teen life. They were zealous for the Lord, but as they got older, they just became more and more complacent about holiness in their life instead of growing in holiness as they ought. Let me ask you this question. What's the next step in holiness God wants from you? I'm not asking you to take my next step. I'm not asking you to take your spouse's next step. I'm not asking you to take your sibling's next step. I'm not asking you to take your friend's next step. I'm asking you this. What is your next step to be growing in grace and to be growing to be more like Jesus in holiness in your life? Hear me when I say there's something wrong when the body of Christ in our country is becoming less sober less moral, and more and more like the culture around us. There's a story told about a man who had served in many ministries over the years in a Baptist church. And unfortunately, over the years, he'd grown proud of his spiritual accomplishments and his pride had blinded him to the condescending attitude he'd developed toward others who were not as faithful as he was. Well, they needed a sub in a sixth grade boys class one Sunday and he happened to be there and was available and so they recruited him and in an effort to impress these boys who didn't know everything that he had done over the years, he spent the bulk of the lesson 
talking about how he had faithfully served in the church for so long. When he finished, hoping they would be impressed with what he had taught them, he just asked them a simple question. Why do people call me a Christian? To his surprise, the class was quiet. But after a pause, one of the boys blurted out, as only a little boy might do, maybe it's because they don't know you. Fact is, the better people know us and the more that we draw nigh to God, the more our life should reflect the holiness of our Savior. Because God is holy. No spot, no blemish, no sin, no fault, no flaw, flaw, nothing but purity. And while I think all of us, maybe even including myself, don't appreciate this truth. I want you to understand this morning there has been a great damage done to the body of Christ because of failing to preach on holiness. So what do you mean? How do you appreciate God's love toward you until you understand how far your sin has separated you from God? So if you think the difference in God and you is like this, God's love is no big deal. If you understand the difference between you and I and our Creator to be far wider than this room, it makes you appreciate the fact that God so loved the world and He so loved you and I that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Great damage because no one appreciates what it was like for the sinless Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, in, who was holy and harmless and undefiled to have the sin of all of mankind placed upon Him on the cross to become sin for us. We don't understand how great of a thing it, did, it was that He did if we don't understand the holiness of our God. And no one can worship God in spirit and in truth. Until we know God is holy. No no spot, no sin, no blemish. The Holy One. Amen. If you quietly stand.